All right, good morning, church. All right, we're going to worship God together as we study his words. So open your Bible to the New Testament book of, of John. All right, one of the things that we've been doing for this unique series is rather than me just read the text uh, from the word, we're, since we're memorizing it, we're having members, uh, some from here, but also members who are abroad, who are serving the Lord on the field, who are going to recite it for us. So watch this with me. I'm Tyler B, and this is John 14, 2 through 6. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, said Thomas, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. So Jesus' words, in my Father's house are many rooms. I don't know about you, but the theme of home has always been fascinating to me. In big ways, in small ways, in biblical ways, outside of scripture as well. Books like The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, which is a children's novel that actually made me cry when I was reading it aloud to my kids. I read multiple books aloud to my kids and there was only one that made me actually break down. And it was a, it was a story about a China rabbit uh, named Edward Tulane. And here's, here's how the book ends. Once there was a China rabbit who was loved by a little girl. Once, oh marvelous once, there was a rabbit who found his way home. And the word home is the last word of the story. Home is fascinating. In, in the 1990s, there was a hymn that was written for students. It probably hymn is too strong of a word. It was kind of an anthem for youth conferences. It's a song about the father's house. It was called Big, Big House. Uh, talked about a big, big house with lots and lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food. Wasn't super theologically stout, but we sang it anyway, and we sang it very robustly. Home, it's about home. It's about getting home where God is. If you've ever seen pictures of people coming back from overseas or even our student trips, I love this about our student trips. You know, you're coming back from a trip, you've gone on the mission field somewhere in the world, and you come back, and you're in the Birmingham airport, and you come down the escalator to baggage claim, and, and there's this group of people there, right? It's parents, and it's small group leaders, and they're, they've got signs in one form or another that says, welcome home, and there's cheering, and there's hugs and embraces, and then stories are told, and we grab our luggage, and we, we go home, right? These beautiful conventions, these ways that we engage with people that all rotate around this idea and this theme of home. I, I love the story of the prodigal son. Why? Because it's about home. It's about, it's about a boy who lost his way. And he goes to his dad and he says, I want, I want all the family money that I would have been entitled to when you died, but I, I would like it now. And the father graciously says, gives it to him and the boy runs off and drinks the family inheritance down to zero and finds himself in a pigsty and he completely reaches rock bottom and he looks around and all the people, all the parties that he was funding and when he runs out of money, he runs out of friends and he realizes he's all alone and he sits there in the ashes and he thinks it was better in my father's house. And then his next thought is, 
I wonder if, I wonder if my dad would be gracious enough to let me come back, not, not to live in the house, but just to be a hired servant, to, to work around on the property. And he comes back, and the beauty of the story, if you know the story, is that the boy comes, and, and all along as the boy's walking back, the father's been waiting. The father left the light on. The moment the boy left, the father left the light on. And the father's looking, and he sees him coming from a long way off, and he just starts tearing up the dirt and just running in the direction of his son. And he gets there, and he picks him up, and he grabs him, and he's kissing him, and he's hugging him, and he's, he's barking orders. He's saying, I need a ring, stat. I need shoes. I need clothes. I need a DJ. I need a feast. It's time to sing. It's time to dance because the boy's home. We thought he was dead, but he's alive. We thought he was lost, but he's been found. Gets me every time. Because it's about home. And I love that Jesus here in some of the closing moments of his life on earth before he goes to his own crucifixion, he spends some of his very last words calming troubled hearts by talking about what? Home. My father's got a place for you. I'm going, I'm going to prepare it so that where I am, you may be also. We're going to look at this passage under two headings. Losing the way is the first. Losing the way. John 14, if you got it open still, verse 1 reads this way. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Just think about the relevance of those opening words that Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. You know, the Bible is not, it doesn't just kind of sit in this mystical abstract realm of of, of prospects and, and ideas. It is so deeply Relevant. You know, every time the, the most frequent command in the entire Bible is do not be afraid, why would God have to say do not be afraid so many times in his word? Because there's a human proclivity to fear. He's addressing right where we live. Why does Jesus have to say don't let your hearts be troubled if it weren't that there's a human proclivity to troubled hearts? Anxiety, fear, all of that is bundled in this very Room. It's clear in scripture that God doesn't address us and tell people with troubled hearts, hey, just stop it, cut it out. I see that trouble going on in your hearts and I need you to just end it right now. It's not, it's not that way. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a clock that it hangs over our heads. You read the book of Psalms. Every third Psalm, literally, mathematically, One-third of the psalms are lamentation psalms, which means one-third of the psalms that were written in the middle of your Bible are psalms where people have troubled hearts. (laughs) Their hearts are troubled, right? It's a reality, and we can overhear people with troubled hearts seeking God, running to him, casting their cares on him, running to him for help. Matter of fact, right here in this context, we see the reality of troubled hearts, not just in the lives of the disciples, Jesus himself has a troubled spirit. Chapter 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit. Jesus, troubled in his spirit, and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. In other words, it's possible for Jesus to both have a troubled spirit and to tell his disciples, don't have a troubled spirit. 
heart? How, how do you combine those two things without there being a contradiction? Again, scripture finishes the sentences of troubled people while also exhorting those troubled people to not lose hope. That's, what, that's the way it come, comes together. Even though Jesus is troubled by betrayal, betrayal of one of his closest friends and companions, who wouldn't be troubled by that level of betrayal? And yet, even though he's troubled by it in chapter 13, verse 21, he trusts in God. You know what's possible for you? And I hope this has been your experience at times. It's possible for you to hold two things in tension. It's possible to live at an intersection where you feel shaken to your core and yet your heart is convinced that God is still on his throne. You ever been there before? I don't know why I'm convinced that somehow God is still in control. Somehow all things are gonna work together for good because it sure doesn't look like it. Everything that I'm looking at right now is raising my heart rate. Everything I'm looking at right now is causing deep anxiety and stress. Here's the question for you. Where do you look when your heart is troubled? Because what's Jesus saying? He's saying, eyes up. Your hearts are troubled, believe in God. Believe also in me. He puts himself right there on par with God, which is what gets him into trouble on days like tomorrow when he'll be crucified because he made himself equal with God. He says, while you're believing in God, believe in me too, I'm his son. Second person of the Trinity. You think about this and the reality of the Christian life is there some place, when you read verse one, chapter 14, verse one, and it says, do not let your hearts be troubled, does that suggest that there's some way for every Christian to arrive at a place where there, there are no doubts left? No more questions, no more struggles. You kind of arrive at this place of absolute serenity, peace, no questions, no mystery, right? Please hear me this morning. If you came in this morning with a truckload of doubts and questions about the faith, I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you didn't self-disqualify and just say, you know, I woke up this morning and I've got doubts about essential things that are part of the Christian faith. I think I'm not gonna go to church. No, we come and we sing our hopes. We sing our questions. We speak those things. We, we run to God with our questions. I'm not a fan of the popular movement of piling on to Christians who are having a crisis of faith. And there are vast numbers of Christians right now who are having a crisis of faith and are wrestling with doubts. And one of the reasons is my own faith is stronger today because I didn't just accept some pat answers that were associated with Christianity that I heard growing up. I don't think God is afraid of your questions. I don't think the Christian faith is so fragile that it shatters the moment you start fumbling it. It's better than that. Christian faith is titanium. It's not... It's not plate glass. You can trust it. You can trust the truth. Christianity, here, here's the other side of it, right? So doubts, doubts can be a welcome place where, in other words, we can work through our doubts and our questions, and on the far side of working through those questions, there's a stronger faith that's been forged because you fought the fight. It was hard, but you kept pressing through and walking with your face in the wind, believing hope against hope. But I wanna be quick to add on the other side, Christianity doesn't make an embarrassing showing at the table of conversation. Christianity holds up. It doesn't need our help. It can stand on its own two feet. It is a reasonable faith. Peter says, give people a reason for the hope that lies within you. This Christian faith is not some irrational leap it's not some leap into absolute irrational uh, behavior and thinking. The reason titanic intellects like Aurelius Augustine, 
Blaise Pascal, Soren Kierkegaard, the Apostle Paul, Dorothy Sayers, Tolkien and Lewis, John Lennox, mathematician at Oxford. The reason they became devoted followers of Jesus is not because they checked their brain at the door and had spiritual goosebumps and said, I'm all in. The reason they became devoted followers of Jesus is because it's nearly impossible to deny the historicity of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection three days later and the exponential spread of Christianity throughout the known world despite severe persecution and the death and martyrdoms of the apostles who said they saw him alive and on pain of death kept saying they saw him alive. D.L. Moody famously said, I believe the witnesses who got their throats cut. In other words, that would have been the moment when their lives were on the line. That would have been the moment for them to say, ah, didn't know it was going there. It was just a hoax. We just made it up. No, they kept saying, we saw him alive. I'm telling you, we touched the scars and the wounds in his previously crucified body. And Jesus says in John 14, he calls it before that happens, He says, listen, fellas, believe in God and believe in me and you'll get home. I promise, I'm gonna make a place for you. You're gonna make it home. Just hold on to me. Cling to me. Don't believe Christianity because, you know, it was good enough for your parents and it's good enough for you. Believe it because it's nothing less than the truth. It's the truth. Believe it because your eternal destiny depends on what you do with Jesus of Nazareth and his claims, his identity, his authority, and his coming kingdom. Everything hinges on that. So why were their hearts so troubled? Why did Jesus have to say, don't let your hearts be troubled? What was the trouble going on? You ever been in a room where where the tension is so thick, sometimes we say you could cut it with a knife? Where you're in a situation, you're in a room, the tension is so thick because the people who are in that space with you are being asked or required to process something that you can't process calmly. Suddenly the room has been taken over, just sucked all the air out of the room and you're having to process really, really hard things right there. That's what's going on. That's the context of John chapter 14. You just back up, ignore the chapter breaks. They weren't there in the beginning. Ignore the chapter breaks. Five minutes ago, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And, And the interesting thing is when you read this and you read the other gospel accounts about what happened in that moment, all eyes didn't turn and look at Judas. Now, they weren't like, yeah, yeah, he was, he, he was sketchy from day one. They didn't know. Matter of fact, the questions that they start asking are, is it me? Nobody, it's not obvious to anyone that Judas is the one who's going to be the turncoat. Everybody now, it's tension. You could cut it with a knife. Am I the one that he's predicting is going to turn on Jesus and hand him over? And even when Judas... It says, leaves hastily, runs out into the night. Even then, the disciples still don't make the connection. Look, if you got your Bible open, chapter 13, verse 27. So Jesus, he talks to Judas, and he says, what you're doing, namely betraying me, go ahead and do it quickly. Verse 28, none of those reclining at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival. In other words, Judas runs out the door and a lot of the disciples think he's going to Publix. He's going to the grocery store. He'll be back in just a minute because Jesus sent him off on that errand. You know, he's the one who carries the purse. He's going off. He's going to buy some supplies and he'll be back 
in a second. For all they knew, the betrayer was still in the room when Judas left. And so doesn't that put every, a new complexion on it when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled because the context of don't let your hearts be troubled is broken trust. It's the betrayal of the Son of God. It is apostasy. We've seen in recent days some prominent Christians deny the faith they once proclaimed. You talk about troubling our hearts. And yet when we see Christians who used to proclaim the gospel denying the gospel and denying Jesus, there's more discernment needed than for us to just say, Jesus was troubled by it in 1321, I'll be troubled by it as well. Because sometimes our response to failing Christians and failing leaders, sometimes our response reveals something more like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who says, God, thank you that I'm not like them. Thank you I'm not like those jokers who folded like origami. Thank you that you made me stouter than the rest of them. Famous last words. Five minutes from now, Peter's gonna say, Jesus, ride out, ride out with me for death and glory. <laughs> let's do this, let's do this right now. Again, famous last words. What's Jesus gonna say? Peter, you've seen too many movies. You're about to fold before the night's out. You're going to deny you even know me. The failures of others so often bring out self-righteousness in us. And the remedy to broken trust is not self-trust. The more cynical we become in our culture about our fallen Christian heroes, the more we're told by our culture, the only person you can really trust is you. At the end of the day, there's only one person you can trust, and it's you. The remedy, though, again, to broken trust is not self-trust. Because Peter there, in that very same moment, chapter 13, verse 37, if you want to see it on the page, is when he says, I'm going to die for you. I will lay down my life for you. So what is Jesus, how does Jesus respond to Peter's self-trust? Somebody's going to betray you, Peter's saying, that's not going to be me. I'm telling you, I'm ready to go all the way to the end with you. And what, is, what does Jesus do? Jesus, he pops his balloon. Jesus says, before the night is out, you're gonna deny you even know me. And Mark's gospel lets you hear Peter saying, no, I won't. I mean, nobody tries this except for Peter. <laughs> Jesus predicts he's gonna deny, and then Peter, even then, it has an argument to go back and forth with Jesus. Understand, the context of where we're going with John chapter 14 it grows out of John chapter 13, and John 13 is an absolute disaster zone. Judas is gonna betray me, mark it. Peter, you're gonna deny me, mark it. Also, all of you disciples, I'm leaving soon, and none of you can come with me. These are haunting, devastating, deeply troubling words, and yet Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe me when I say, I'm gonna get you home. I'm gonna get all of you home. I love it. I love it when Jesus speaks with that kind of confidence. I love it when he calls the shot before he throws it. And that's what he does with Peter. In another gospel, in Luke chapter 22, we hear Jesus say, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, note this word, when, 
When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. My prayer for prodigals who are here, but whose hearts are wandering from God, is that word when. God has the power to say when. To say when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What's the truth that we sing often in the great hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. God, you secure my wandering heart for yourself. Friend, if you have doubts this morning, if you can only hang on to one thing in Christianity, make it Christianity's Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Believe in God, believe in me and your home. Trust me, hold on to me and you're home. You're safe. A lot of other stuff can be confused about. I think it was J.I. Packer who said that God can hold on to a believer who seems to have only a needle of truth in a haystack of error. If the needle is Jesus, <laughs> yes, he can hold you. Christianity isn't faith in an ironclad argument, but an ironclad person. It's faith in Jesus. I love what the late pastor Tim Keller said. He said, in the whole history of the world, there is only one person who not only claimed to be God himself, but also got enormous numbers of people to believe it. Only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. Michael Horton writes these words, Jesus doesn't just give us a message, he is the message. He is not only the one who points us to God, he is God's presence with us, Emmanuel. He is with us. So there's losing the way and second point, finding home. Finding home, I had a terrifying experience in kindergarten. Uh, I was new to, obviously, to Harold Keller Elementary School. I was new to the neighborhood that we lived in. We had just moved into that neighborhood about a year before I started going to school. I was new to school bus life. I knew the number on the side of the bus was supposed to be 323. So I walked on not one of these 10 buses, but the one that says 323 is the one that's going back to my neighborhood. And so I remember walking on to 323. I get on this bus, and we turn into my general neighborhood, and... Um, kids start just emptying out the bus. Every time the bus stops, kids start emptying out. And I guess I just checked out at some point. I don't know, I was in another world, I guess. Because next thing I know, I hear the bus driver, a woman who's driving the bus, and she says, son, where do you live? And I looked at the front of the bus and that's when I realized there were only two people on the bus, me and the driver. Everyone else had left the bus. And she said, where do you live? And I looked out all those windows and I thought, I have no idea where I live. And so she says, come up here in the front, come sit with me. And so I walked up to the front of the bus and sat right next to her and she said, we're gonna drive the entire route together. Don't space out on me. We're gonna drive this route together and I need you to help me find your house. <laughs> and so we're driving here and there and I, I, I just... I don't remember if we talked or whatever. All I remember is just this feeling of worry and embarrassment that I'm the only kid who, is, who, who doesn't even know where he lives. 
Everybody else knew where to get off, and I didn't know. And so it's super embarrassing. And then I'm probably struggling to process what this means for my future uh, if I never make it back to my house. So she, again, I go up to the front. I join her in the front. We drive the entire route, and then she comes to the corner of 39th and Elmwood Parkway. And there's this house on the corner of 39th and Elmwood that has an oddly colored brick uh, still to this day, we ended up uh, buying that house from my mom and my kids grew up in that same house on Elmwood. I know that house like backwards and forwards. And that was the house. As soon as I saw that oddly colored brick house on the corner of 39th and Elmwood, you just can't imagine the relief <laughs> of reaching the conclusion. One, I am smart. And, and two, I don't have to live with this bus driver. Uh, she's not my new mom. Like, <laughs> I'm going to make it home. And I poured out of that 323 school bus and I ran past, it's exactly nine houses to my house. And I ran past all those houses and, and there it was in all of its beauty, 5101 Elmwood Parkway. It's never looked better than that moment as I stood there. Something about home. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? A theologian from the 1800s named Arthur Pink described home in the Bible with these words. He wrote, the place where we are loved for our own sakes, the place where we are always welcome, the place where our loved ones are together. And Jesus looks out at these troubled disciples who were about to lose their way, who were about to fail themselves and fail one another and ultimately fail Jesus. And he says, listen, fellas, don't be troubled. I'm going to get you home. Hold on to me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And where I am, I'm going to prepare a place. And where I am, you will be also. In my Father's house are many rooms. Here's a question to ponder. How would Jesus prepare a place in heaven for failing disciples? Again, the context of John 14 is marinated in failing disciples. Realize that every time in the pages of the Gospels that Jesus offers a blessing to sinners, he is borrowing against the future. For example, in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, and she thinks they're talking about literal physical water, and he says, listen, no, no, I'm talking about another kind of water. There's a water, if you knew I had it, you'd be asking me for it, and I'd be giving it to you, and you'd drink it once, and you'd be satisfied for life. That's the kind of water I'm offering. Well, Jesus is making a promise conditioned on what he's going to do in his death and resurrection. In the same way, when Jesus promises, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'm going to get you home, he's making a promise conditioned on what he's going to do tomorrow, hanging, suspended between heaven and earth, dying in their place and rising again on Easter Sunday. Jesus is making this promise based on the fact that I'm going to die your death, I'm going to pay your debts, I'm going to rise from the grave. He is looking beyond, if you will, Black Friday to Easter Sunday, and he's capitalizing on Easter Sunday's victory. He's bringing it from the future into the present, and he's making a promise. He says, I'm going to prepare a place and I will come again. If you think about this in one way, you might be thinking, so Jesus said all the way back there the night when he was about to be betrayed and he says, I'm going to go prepare a place and then I'm going to come again and we can reach the conclusion as Christians, sure is taking a long time to prepare the place. 
Here we are 2,000 years later, it's still not done. This takes a long, long time. What is going on here? Does that mean that Jesus has taken 2,000 years to prepare the place? And the answer is no. And it's no because this same time tomorrow, Jesus is gonna hang on a cross and he's gonna say to the thief right next to him, he says, today, you and me, paradise. That was fast. He prepared the place rather fast because 24 hours later, he's offering it, right? Jesus prepared this place for you by dying in your place on the cross and rising again. So if you trust Jesus Christ anytime from the man, the thief on the cross right next to him until this very morning, if you trust in Jesus Christ and you die this afternoon, the place is ready. It's totally prepared. The room is ready. In verse three, actually points beyond merely life after death for us in heaven more ultimately to our resurrected existence in the new creation because Jesus is talking about his return. I will come again and take you to myself and where I am you will be also. So what is the new creation like? Well, all you gotta do is just keep flipping the pages of the Bible, get to the end of it, and you get a picture of the new creation in Revelation chapter 21, I'll read it to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling, God's house, the Father's house. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Home. That's what Christians have now called these 2,000 years, the blessed hope. Death no more, sorrow no more, pain no more, every tear wiped from our eyes. I love what Rico Tice in his book, Honest Evangelism, he unpacks this, this tender image by writing, the picture here is of the Lord God cupping your face in his hands wiping tears from your cheeks like a doting parent and saying, never again, it's all over, it's all done. For all who trust in Jesus Christ, there is room in the Father's house. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. I wonder if this is, um, if this is a wink to the fact that when Jesus came to this earthly house, there was no what? room. <laughs> there was no room for him in the end. Maybe Jesus is saying, unlike when I came to your house and there were no rooms, in my father's house there are many rooms, plenty space. It's not overbooked. That's impossible. There's plenty space. You know, in, in John 13, 37, Peter, he, those words that we looked at briefly earlier, Peter says, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And in that moment, Peter grabbed the Christian faith by the wrong end. He was still thinking about his own resiliency. He was thinking about his own death for Jesus, not Jesus' death for him. 
He grabbed Christian faith by the wrong end. Let's be real clear on this. Heaven's house being full only depends on one death, and it isn't yours. So break the carnival mirror of your spiritual (laughs) self-estimation and stare in wonder at the only one who has ever been awesome, Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I gotta insist on this, that we boast in no one except in Christ. Jesus had the power in John 14 to prepare the place for billions of sinners, rebels, lost causes, and to build and prepare that place in one legendary weekend. Good Friday, better Sunday, and the house was ready. (laughs) Christian journey is sustained by future hope and present provisions. And don't miss this point. Future hope and present provisions. Jesus says, you see verse four? You know the way to where I'm going. And I love Thomas chimes in here and he interrupts Jesus and he's like the kindergartner on the empty school bus. And he's looking around and he's like, actually, in point of fact, we don't know the way that you're going. How could we possibly know the way you're going? He's looking out of all the windows of school bus number 323 and he's like, you say we know, but literally where? (laughs) That's what Thomas is doing. How can we know the way? And Jesus says what? I am the way. (laughs) I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is the only road that leads home. Believe in God. Believe in me. You're home. I love this theme of home. One of my favorite lines in a novel about a young man who lost his way is this line, Marilyn Robinson's book entitled Home. Weary or bitter or bewildered as we may be, God is faithful. Get this. He lets us wander so we will know what it means to come home. Isn't it beautiful that this idea of home looms so large in the Christian faith that the outward symbols of the Christian faith are a bath and a table. Baptism, which signals the once for all cleansing of God's grace in Christ Jesus that allows us to cross the threshold into the household of faith, and the Lord's Supper, which is a meal that reminds us what Jesus did to turn enemies into family. And Jesus tells his disciples, for all the ages, I will meet you right here at this table. Whenever you remember what I've done in my broken body, in my shed blood, I will meet you and find you, my brothers and sisters, right here at the table because we're family. In John 14, the Lord prepares a place. Famously in Psalm 23, the Lord prepares a table. And we have the joy and privilege on a regular basis as a church of meeting the Lord at the table and remembering what it took to bring us there. 